Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We wanted to open up a dialogue and talk with some of the listeners a little bit and just see what you guys have to say. We have a voicemail line. It is at 413-FOSTER-3. That's 413-367-8373. Now, we would love to be able to share some of your stories. If you have a couple quick stories you want to put on the air, or if it's something you'd just like to talk to us a little bit and let us know what you're hearing and what you would like to hear, that would be awesome. We would love to have that from you guys. So if you would reach out and let us know. Also, I'm going to uh, just assume that you guys know that we are talking about putting some of these stories on the air. So if there's some privacy issues, feel free to change a name. Don't use a name. I don't care. Just take care of the privacy stuff. We don't want anybody getting in any trouble on anything like that. We're not trying to out anybody's story out here in the world. So just be mindful of privacy. Again, that is the phone number is 413-FOSTER-3. 413-367-8373. Thanks a lot, and we hope to hear from you soon. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. And today we just have Jason again. Amanda's off doing all those kidly duties. We have 10, 12 inches of snow, something like that on the ground. And the kids are all home from school today and yesterday and tomorrow. And there's a bit of wildness happening in our house. So today it's just me and Anastasia Lee. How are you doing today, Anastasia? I'm great. How are you? Great. We've overcome our technical difficulties that none of you will, nobody listening will know about it because we'll have cut all that out. But just know yeah. that we've been fighting technology up to this point already. No. Yeah. Um, you know, as as you know, and everybody else listening knows, we talk about foster care and adoption, which means there's a good chance you probably know something about this, maybe even from a very personal experience. So how did how did you get connected in this system? Well, I was adopted from Russia when I was five um, by an American family. So we all live in Houston, Texas now. Um, and that's kind of where my passion obviously started. I um was given up by my birth mother at age three over there. It was a rough time. Uh, this was mid nineties. So kind of right around the fall of the Soviet union, right before Putin took over. And, um, that's really obviously what, what brought me here and I'm very thankful for it, but, um, it was, it was transition. I can imagine. I can. I recall that time vaguely. So um, you're a few years younger than me because I remember that time a little bit better than a three year old would have. <laughs> yeah. But that that was a big time, you know, in the world. That's a lot of like global economic transmission or trans um, transitions and a lot of stuff going on in the world. And you know, you kind of got sucked into the middle of that. Um, I'm curious be, because I know very little about Russia. Full disclosure. Um, so <laughs> did that involve like, like a, an orphanage or, or some sort of foster care system or, or what did that look like? 
Yes. So when I was three, um, we were taking my sister and I have a younger sister who I was blessed enough to be adopted with. We were taken from our birth mother and put into an orphanage. So I was in an orphanage from age three to five over there until I had been adopted. Yes. Okay. Uh, you mentioned you were taking from taken from your mother. Was that something involuntary, like part of their system over there, child welfare system? It was, yes. Um, she, you know, like I said, it was a very rough time. From what I recall, from what I remember of her, we had no other family. Um, we lived in a shelter or a group home kind of thing with um, three rooms, one kitchen, and probably about seven or eight other people. There were no bed sheets. Um, there were bugs everywhere. And uh, she was a, you know, she was 16 years old when she had me. She was 19. She had my sister. She had no choice. She was a prostitute, to be quite honest with you. And um, one day, I think somebody else in the house noticed that she was gone for an incredibly long time, made a call, and uh, we were put up for adoption. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> that, that's that's quite the quite the story to begin your life with. So I'm curious, number one, that's, that's a lot of stuff for a young child to be processing, even from the perspective of a kid and how much they can, they can understand. I would assume that hopefully you've had some, some trauma work done in your life. Have, have you done a lot of that to, to, to figure out how to work through that and get yourself into a healthy mind space? I had to, I absolutely had to. Um, when I came over here at five, I was not in the right headspace at all. I was a very, I was a very troubled child just to put it up front. I, um, caused my parents a lot of grief and anguish and, um, I was mean to other kids, mean to my sister. Um, I had no way of expressing my feelings. So I started self-harming very early at age eight. And so they had me put in therapy at age eight. And then I went to a therapeutic boarding school for high school because it just honestly seemed to get progressively worse. And I think that boarding school plus, you know, maturing, aging, going through puberty, and then eventually having my own child is what saved my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. So self-harm at age eight is pretty, pretty uncommon at that age. It's terrifying because my son now is eight years old and I don't think he even knows what that is. Um, so when I look back at that, I, I, and I didn't want to acknowledge it for a long time too. You know, when I first went into therapy, they were like, well, this is probably because of your adoption. I was like, I barely remember it. You know, what does that have to do with anything? Like I just am who I am, you know? And, um, that was not the case. That was absolutely not the case. I had to work through a lot of different types of therapy to get to where I am now. Oh, I can only imagine because that's that's a bucket of stuff to deal with. And and I'm not convinced that pretty much every human doesn't need some therapy work in their life anyways. Yes. I'm with you on that. I, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that because we've all had our, our, our personal traumas in life. And the problem is, is most people will hear a story like this and say, well, I didn't have anything like that in my life. My life was pretty, pretty easy. And the truth is that, that my worst day it's still my worst day, and it's just as bad as your worst day is for you because I, we have relative perception here. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, it's so easy to look at somebody else's story and think, oh, that's a lot better than mine or it's a lot worse than mine. But really, I mean, it's about what we do with it, not, you know, or how we handle it. So I, I agree with you on that. All right. So we're going to start a fund where we try and get everybody to go see a therapist because I know some people <laughs> that I want to send first. <laughs> You know, me too. I got, I got a couple people I could recommend. <laughs> but I'm not letting anybody have the phone number for my therapist because no. I need him to have lots of room in his schedule. I went through probably maybe 20 or 30 therapists before, or psychiatrists, honestly, <laughs> to find the one that worked for me. So it's not something that it's an easy task to just find one and 
you know, it's going to be all gold and, and diamonds from there. You, you have to work at it. And so no, no one gets my therapist number either. So. <laughs> well, you know, the very first therapist I ever visited, um, I, I'm not going to say he was bad at the job or anything, but he just, he wasn't the guy for me. He, his methodology was not working well for me. And I happened to reach out to a friend of mine who had a pretty traumatic past and, and said, Hey dude, do you have any recommendations? And he recommended the guy and my gosh, if he's not the perfect guy, because this guy, he's the right guy for me. And my, when Amanda comes with me, you know, she, her and I do these, do these, um, these visits together typically, and she can actually talk to him as well. It's a good fit for her as well. So as a married couple, only having to find, go through two therapists to find the one we needed. I think we got super lucky. That is awesome. I wish, I mean, you know, I think, I think you also have to be willing to put in a certain amount of work to want to have a therapist to work. And, you know, at eight years old, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really take it that seriously. I don't even think I knew what was going on quite honestly. Um, but I found um, my current doctor who I'm with now at around, I think I want to say age 20, 20 ish. So I've been with her almost 10 years. Um, and she's, yeah, she's perfect. But at that point I was willing to do the work because at that point I had my son and I had no choice, quite honestly. Um, yeah. Well, let's be real honest here. You had a choice, you had a choice, but you chose, you chose the betterment of your son over something that was hard. That is, that is a good way to put it. You're right. I did have a choice. Um, and I would, I would choose him every day. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to mention that because that's something that so many people don't realize that, we make choices every day. And sometimes, sometimes we will say that I don't have a choice and for better or worse, we always have a choice. You know, sometimes I choose not to go to jail. Right. <laughs> right? Yes. Thankfully I've never been there. <laughs> I was only locked up once when I was about five years old because my dad was a police officer and he thought it was oh. funny to lock me up. <laughs> Where are you going? What did you do? <laughs> Yeah, my dad was a police officer and a bit of a jokester. So he he definitely um, he he had his fun with that. And uh, I got to experience it as a very young child. I think it was also probably somewhere deep down inside. He was really wanting to, me to go, hey, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scared straight before I ever really did anything terribly wrong. So, yeah. Well, I, I would be scared straight too. My parents told me if I ever went to jail, they were not going to bail me out. And I think that kind of kept me at least on in the legal um, system out of trouble. I was just lucky enough to never have gotten caught, I guess. <laughs> well, my dad always told me, um, if I'm in jail, he, I should probably bribe the, uh, bribe the jailer not to let him in the cell with me. <gasps> oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> he was very serious about that. He was very old school, but yeah, it's, but, but that was just kind of his way of making certain. I realized how serious some of this stuff was and it, it, it is was, serious. And look at you never in jail. So, right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I do want to step back a little bit though, because you'd mentioned self-harm. I know self-harm runs a lot with suicidal ideation and, and stuff like that. Did you ever struggle with that as part of your journey? Yes, that was the actually probably one of the main reasons I went to boarding school was because I started to attempt suicide at about, I would say, age 14. Um, I think yeah, I was 14. Um, and I was obviously never successful at it, thank God. But it, you know, it, there were multiple things I tried. There was, you know, cutting, there were pills, um, alcohol. There was just things I was doing that was just not appropriate for anybody to really be doing. And, and I don't, think I even really understand why I was doing it besides that there was 
so much pain inside that I didn't know how to express. Um, and I, it's not because I, to be honest with you, I don't even think I wanted to die. I just wanted something to express what I was feeling. And, um, that's what I happened to choose. Well, I have to ask because, you know, we've had lots of kids come through our house and, and we've had our own journeys. And so I'm curious, as you look back on that, um, what was your, where, where were you at? Was it, was the suicidal ideation, self-harm was, was that a method of just really trying to uh, be certain that you could, that you could control the pain or was it something else altogether? I think it was a cry for help. I think I was, I think I was surprised quite a few memories. And around that age, you know, I was hitting puberty and I, I would even just like randomly sometimes get these flashbacks of things I hadn't remembered for years. And, and then, and there are things that, you know, I was remembering that at the time, you know, being three, four with my mom or in the orphanage, that didn't make sense that once I started to get older, I understood this is really messed up. And, um, I, I couldn't talk about it. you know, at the time I felt like I couldn't talk about it. Um, but once I got there, you know, I, I, um, I think that we were able to figure out a way I could communicate. And that was by sending me to a boarding school where I could solely focus on myself and, and what I needed to do to, to process what happens. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I, I'm going to bet, you know, the things that happened when you were, you know, three to five years old, you probably didn't have a whole lot of ability to process through any of that stuff at that age. <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. I, I was completely clueless. And then I was also very naive as to how it was affecting my present life at the time. Um, I didn't know anything about mental health. I didn't know, you know, how these memories or how these, you know, experiences the three were affecting my life. And I was 14 and I'm living in, you know, America and my parents are really well off. And, you know, I, I could have anything I wanted. I could do anything I wanted. And I, I just, I felt ungrateful and I felt sad and I didn't know why. Um, and I felt guilty, quite honestly. There, there was just, I don't, there was just a certain amount of guilt I felt. And instead of processing it in a healthy way, I chose, you know, suicidal attempts and, and cutting and things like that. Um, I just needed to be more educated on how to process my emotions. Yeah, because I'm just going to guess you didn't pay attention in, cl- in school when they had the uh, how, to, how to handle hard emotions class, right? No, yeah, I mean, they definitely did not, as far as I remember, teach that one. And, uh, you know, I I will, I, I don't like to sound like I'm just complaining about the education system we have here in America, because quite frankly, we have it pretty good. But there are a couple things that I feel like they really fail with. And one of them is the uh, things like emotional processing for kids, because how many kids do we know who are going through hard things who keep it bottled up? And um, the other one would be personal finance because, my God, when I stepped out of high school, I knew how to, I knew how to how to make money because you had to go to work to get money or do something stupid and illegal. I usually just chose work because it was easier, and and I knew how to spend money. And that was yeah. all the skills I had around that, and that led to its own issues in my in my early adulthood dealing with with basically being broke all day, every day, because I had no clue how to, how to manage money. And, and I didn't have any idea how to manage my emotions either. So I can only imagine for someone who went through something as traumatic and big as you had been through, whether you realized it or not at the time, that that's a lot more pressure on, on you as a, as a teenager. And I mean, come on, 
puberty was hard on all of us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was hard on us though when we didn't have all the extra pressure. So that's, that's a tough time. You know, I mean, I remember 14 year old girls when I was in school and let me tell you, they were kind of mean. Hey there, foster care nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Yeah, really mean and really crazy. Um, at least for myself, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, I agree with you on the on what you said earlier about yeah. I think that school systems should definitely teach that kind of stuff because I was lucky enough to have been adopted again by people who are able to afford you know a third party therapist for me. But there are foster kids you know living in homes and stuff who are going to school every day just coming home. You know they where's their outlet? Where where are they going to end up? I don't know where I would be if I didn't have that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the foster system here in Missouri, at least does provide some level of help. You know, the, the difficulty is that right now we're in the middle of this, this global pandemic, which is also a global trauma and all the therapists are pretty booked up. I bet. So yeah, go, go find, go, go become a new patient and a therapist somewhere and say how long it takes you to get in. <laughs> No, for real. I, I completely could see that. I mean, you know, I actually had a session with my therapist earlier today and she's like, okay, so my next available booking is in two months, but I can squeeze you in for a 20 minute session in two weeks. Cause she's known me forever. And I was like two months, like you, you're busy. Um, good for you. I, I don't know. How, is that a compliment? Like, you know, it, I get that. I think that this pandemic has been very hard on quite a few people. And I can only imagine, you know, what kids are thinking right now. Cause you know, we were talking earlier kind of about 9-11, not that this is the same thing, um, but it is still something that a lot of kids that I think are afraid of, and they're they're going to take this on and remember this for the rest of their lives. Oh, I remember 9-11. And as a young man, I had just gotten out of the military at that point in time. I remember that day very clearly, and I don't remember a lot of my childhood. A lot of it's pushed out of my head. Those days, though, I it was it was a big deal to me, and I was... In my early twenties, we'll just give it that because I don't remember exactly how old I was at the time. Um, but but yeah, I, I was. It was a big deal to me. I can't. And it, it's a conversation I've been thinking about sitting down with my older two boys because they were very young at the time. They're twenty one and twenty three right now, and so that was like at that formative time for them. And I'm curious to really try and understand how that has has affected them growing up. So. You know, in this world with a pandemic, with with an entire population of kids who who have grown up always having a boogeyman somewhere trying to kill America, and and then having all the additional traumas because you know people don't realize that when you stand in line at the Walmart, you're standing in line with somebody who's probably experienced some sort of physical abuse, some sort of you know sexual trauma, all kinds of horrible stuff, and we don't treat each other like we're people who all have experienced some trauma. No. And then you, you know, you throw online, you throw social media onto that, you know, you throw all these different factors in and, and it, it's, it has become an incredibly hard world to find support in when it's so easy to just, you know, for people to go and make fun of each other because they, they're nameless, they're faceless, you know, they're not, they're not being recognized as people. And so I, I get that. 
Oh, absolutely. Just today I saw, because we have the big snowstorm coming through and the interstates are, I mean, the snow won't quit falling. So the, the highways are kind of crappish right now. And, and I was glancing at the, uh, the MoDOT page, which is where, you know, they, that's who takes care of our highways. And there was, of course, there's always the one person who wants to yell and scream and, and act like, like they, you know, you guys have totally screwed this up and it's, you're horrible and you're bad. And, and then everybody else. Better, you know? Yeah. And everybody else responds with more or less the same level of hate and vitriol towards that guy. You know, hey, go get your license and go, go get hired over there. And nobody wants to work. So go get a job and do this. And everybody's just as much vitriol and hate back. And I'm like, whoa, this yeah. doesn't solve anything. It is a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And it's, it's hard, you know, like you said, when you have other things going on in your life that people don't know about, because everybody is going through some type of struggle. I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. A struggle is a struggle. And so I think that, yeah, being nicer to people would definitely be a lovely thing if if the world could do that. But um, I don't know. I hope we get there one day. You and me both, you and me both, because from what I've seen, unfortunately, um, we're not headed in that direction quite yet. Yeah. Maybe soon. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what pages you follow. But, man, I see I do see a lot of bashing. I see a lot of hate. And I see, um, yeah, I see people not treating people as people. So I, I hope so. I definitely have hopes for it. Yeah. And, and I think that that comes down to where we need a lot of this, a lot of trauma informed humans in our life to help us realize that, Hey, we've all been through trauma of some sort of some sort. You know, if you have buried your parents, that's a trauma. And I have, you know, my, my dad passed away several years ago. You know, there, there are tons of traumas in your life that come back later on and realize that, Oh yeah, I, I act this way because of this thing that happened when I was a kid and we want to play it off. Like, well, yeah, but that's when I was a kid and that wasn't that big of a deal. Well, like everybody goes through it or whatever, but it's still, you're right. It is still a big deal. It's a lot. I couldn't imagine losing, you know, my adoptive parents right now. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 30 and I still, I rely on, I talk to them daily, you know, I mean, those are my parents and I, um, I, I don't, I mean, I think I would need a lot more therapy if anything ever happened anytime soon. Yeah. Oh, I feel you. I feel you. Um, and, and just mentioning that part makes me, uh, makes me a little bit curious. Do you have any connection with your biological family in Russia? No, um, I've tried multiple ways to find them. Um, I have literally just my birth mother's name and her birthday. Um, I have signed on to like the Russian version of Facebook, looking her up. Um, but all I, with her name and her birthday, apparently it's a relatively common name. So I, uh, wasn't able to find her, my parents assume, cause the way it works, at least in Russia, when we were put in the orphanage, she had a year to get her stuff together as she would have to pay alimony to the orphanage, which is what they called it. That's their words, alimony to the orphanage for like, I guess, as a donation or to keep us on hold. This sounds awful, but just to kind of keep us on reserve. So we wouldn't be put up for adoption. But after a year, if you don't do that, which she didn't, um, you are eligible for adoption. And so she disappeared very quickly after we were put in there. Um, and she would have had the rights to come visit us if she had wanted to. So my parents' theory is something might have happened to her because of her job. Um, I don't know, though. I, I do know that if I were ever were to meet her, I would just hug her, tell her I love her, and tell her that it's okay. And I understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's a lot of tough stuff for you to work through over the years. And I can only imagine what that's been, you know, what that would have been for her to walk through. Did you ever know anything about your biological father? No, I took an ancestry DNA test here and I found out that he was from Iran. Um, I found out, you know, it was like it was like 48 percent Persian and then like 52 percent Russian or something like that. So that's all I know about him. I did find some relatives from his side that I was able to connect to, but they are like sixth cousins um, and nobody knows his name or who it could have possibly been. Nobody recognizes my mom's name. Um, So, but, you know, I did find one cousin who lives in London and she has kind of just taken me in and it was nice to find just some kind of biological you know, connection with somebody, even if it is a sixth cousin in London. <laughs> um, it was nice to have that. So she's been very supportive. And again, I was adopted with my younger sister. So I still have her as well. We're biological through the mother. We do have different fathers and she has a father listed on her birth certificate, but she was, I think, 18 months old when we, when we came over. So I don't think she has ever had as much, I mean, she doesn't even like to talk about it. She just, she's never had an interest in that part of our lives. Okay. Yeah. And it seems that, that some people just do not and some people do, but biology is one of those things that has always just been so interesting to me that it seems for most kids, for most kids, it doesn't, it doesn't go away that questioning of who your parents were and what that means. Because yeah, I'll be real honest. I don't look like my parents, um, <laughs> but I have three siblings who do look just like me and one who does not look like any of us. My oldest sister, she's very pale and very just different. And, and the younger three all look the same. And even as a teenager, I looked around and went, huh, this doesn't look right. What's what's this? It, it was a question that I had in my own head. And um, and so I know that that's something that every child who knows they've been adopted has like there's that that big piece who am i that's a huge part of it how does that how does that work for you do you have that who am i question in your head or or what is the question that the biology really poses for you i i do i and i you know i did in the past before um and i think what i came down to is i just have to make myself you know um i you know, might've been related to people who I um, am no longer in contact with, but, you know, at the end of the day, I get to choose who I am and who I want to be. And I try to focus more on that because whenever I was asking the questions of, yeah, who am I? That's when I started spiraling. Um, I became, you know, just kind of like my mom, I was drinking a lot. I was partying a lot. And then I think it really just kind of hit me when I had my son. Um, it's not about me anymore. And who I want to be is a good mother. And I want to take care of him correctly. And I want him to always feel loved. And I, um, you know, eventually would love to foster and adopt. And so I took parts of, of the people that I have now to make just a new version of myself. Wow, I, I think that's so so very insightful of you to have gotten to that point because the truth is, is we, we even as people who who are biologically connected to the parents they were raised with, I think we all have that question to some extent: Who am I? And and we have to make that decision. It just it seems that even even kids who who know who their parents are, their biological parents are, and maybe don't live with them, you know, there's always that that piece of wanting to have some of that in their, in their experience. But 
knowing who you are is the person you've chosen to become, that's, that's the next level. It took me, I mean, like I said, it took me years of therapy to kind of get there. Cause that, that, I mean, I still don't get me wrong, have doubts every once in a while, you know, like when I, when I even found out I was part Persian, <laughs> my dad said something that was just so awful that I kind of don't even want to repeat because I don't want to offend anybody on air, but it was, you know, it was a racial comment. And I remember being ashamed of it for a minute and he meant it as a joke. He did not mean it in a harmful way. Like my dad is so supportive of, of me, you know, always trying to find my biological family. And my dad is actually one of my biggest supporters, but I mean, I, I will never forget, you know, what he said. And, and for me kind of trying to hide that for a little bit, by just coming, no, no, I'm full Russian, you know? Um, and then even then after a while, I even stopped saying I was Russian. I would just tell people I'm from Houston um, whenever they'd ask where I'm from. And so it took, it took trial and error basically of figuring out what made me feel the most comfortable in situations. Cause when you, when people ask questions and you answer them, there's going to be a follow-up question and, and you don't always know what it's going to be. I was recently at a conference, um, for my, for my job. And I, my name is Anastasia, which is obviously Russian and, um, a doctor, was pushing. He 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 said, "So where are you from?" I said, "I'm from Houston, Texas." He goes, "Well, where were you originally from?" I was like, "Oh, I've lived there most of my life." I just tried and kind of evade the question. He goes, "What is your ethnicity?" <laughs> Straight up, no no filter. And I was like, "Well, I was born in Russia, um, and my dad is Persian." And he stopped asking questions after that. But you know, people can be a little insensitive to it sometimes, and so I, I think you have to kind of think through who you are before you answer them. Otherwise, you know, it, it can be a very uncomfortable situation. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, it took me quite a few years to get to the point where I'm willing to just be rude back to people. If I feel like they're being, <laughs> being unkind, rude, insensitive, whatever. I, you know, I had a friend of mine, we were, we had a couple of kids we were fostering at the time and we we're somewhere. And my friend happens, ran across him and, and he leans over and kind of under his breath, he says, hey, are they half black? And I looked at him and I said, no, they're half white. <laughs> that is perfect. That is a hilarious. I love that response. Cause you know, it brings, it brings attention to what they said is not appropriate, <laughs> but at the same time, it plays it off. Like a, I, I forgive your ignorance. Cause some people just don't understand. And you know, I haven't gotten, if, if that had been anybody else, I would have just been like, I'm, I would have just been like, I'm from Houston, but I was with my boss and I was with actually two of my bosses and this client and this doctor was a big client of ours. <laughs> so I was not able to just be like, you know, I, I'm not going to answer that, or I don't want to talk to you or, you know, whatever it was, I just kind of had to go through the motions of it and um, take it as gracefully as I could. But, you know, there's, there's also been times where I've been a little bit ignorant to, to some things or some people's genetic backgrounds or some things. And so I understand people can just maybe also slip up and say something that they don't really necessarily mean. And so I try and take it with a grain of salt. Like, um, they're just ignorant, you know, they're just ignorant. Yeah. Grace is a big thing, you know, learn how to have grace towards other people. But I will tell you that I leave grace for God. Sometimes, um, he, he can have more grace than I can for sure, because there are moments where I feel it's necessary to call it out out loud in the moment. Um, I had a conversation with a guy a while back where I, I looked at him and literally said, dude, dude, you can be a racist if you want. That's fine. I, I'm not saying who you can or can't be. I'm just telling you like who I am. And yeah. so I'm going to call it out, call what I see out loud. And I'm going to say that the conversation didn't go terribly wonderfully or 
<laughs> yeah, and it's a coworker, and we don't chat a whole lot anymore. And if we need something on a professional level, I'll answer his question. He'll answer mine. But but I leave it at that because some people in this world are just going to have their their biases that sudden. I think that I think it comes a lot out of their parents' generation, and unless they have done the work to get past that, they're never going to you know. My dad, growing up, my dad was a police officer, and he worked in some rough areas up there in in Tennessee. There's a little town called Berry Hill. Berry Hill, Tennessee, sounds yeah. like a pretty little town, right? Um, Berry Hill, Tennessee, is actually where the the projects were back in the '80s. In the, it was like a small section of Nashville, and I'm going to tell you, there was nothing pretty or kind about that part of town. <laughs> it was the most dangerous part of Nashville at that point in time, and so like he developed a lot of biases growing up in the in the '50s and in early '60s, and then that, as part of his job, he went to work in the inner city as a police officer. He developed a lot of biases and and a lot of racism in his life. And as we got older, I lived with that for a long time. But I will give him credit here. And that is that um, one of my stepsisters married a black man. And, you know, Joe Mosey is is one hell of a good guy. And he's a great father. And and his um, my stepsister, they, her family has a nasty genetic disease. And she lost the lottery and, and in her family. So she passed a few years ago. And Joe has, I think they had five kids together. Joe's still an amazing father. And what, what Joe did was he showed my dad like, Hey, there's all these stereotypes and it's not that. And so when we first got into fostering, we talked to a couple members of our family who we knew had some racist tendencies and we were shocked to be able to see just how far people were able to turn from that and change their life to have a whole different reaction to what was going on in their world. No, I completely, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, my parents at the time, this sounds awful, but yeah, they, they chose to adopt from Russia because they wanted children who looked like them. And that was because of my grandparents who were um, incredibly racist. And actually my grandfather is a police officer too. So I wonder if, um, you know, there was something with that, but my mother just felt like she wouldn't be able to, to ever have him love us if we didn't look like the family. Yeah. And, and for some people that matters. And I think if you're going to be a foster family, for sure, you need to take that into account and realize who you're going to have your family around and what's going, what that's going to look like. Um, we had that conversation with my dad. We had that conversation with, with my wife's grandma. She, she was 21 years old when she saw her first black human being in person. Wow. You know, that's, that's how far out in the woods and in Southern Missouri she lived. I've been to her hometown. Oh my gosh. Um, if, if you're worried about overpopulation, I know a town you can put a lot of people <laughs> in. There's nothing there, but, but that part of the, of the state is, does have a lot more tendency towards a lot of that stuff. And she grew up in that. And after we had, we'd started fostering, we had one little guy. Um, I'm going to call him Carl. I always call him Carl because that was his name in our house. That was his nickname. It's not his real name. But Carl was the darkest skinned little baby you ever met in your life. And we were a little concerned about how her grandma would respond to him. And this, I don't know how old. <laughs> She'd never tell you the truth and you couldn't tell it. But this, this older gal who had a lot of racist tendencies, she flat fell in love with this little boy. To, to the point where my wife and her went to the grocery store one day and with the baby and, and this older white dude, he's, he's looking at my wife and my wife is, has Irish heritage for the most part. She looks very, very Irish, very pale skin, very red hair. And 
And this guy keeps like staring at my wife and giving her the evil eye and all. Just try. He he did not like the fact that a white woman was carrying a black baby around. He made it very clear to the point where grandma, who at that point was old enough to pull this off and be okay, she finally just totally lost her stuff on this guy. And she started yelling and screaming and hollering this dude and, and just like giving him the, the story. Like, look here, you know, this is not okay. You need. And he finally just left his cart in the aisle and then left the store. <laughs> I think that was a really awakening experience for him, quite honestly. I really bet it was. I, I have this vivid memory of being in the grocery store with my mom. And I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm white, um, but I, I've got dark eyes and both my parents have green eyes and they're blonde. Um, and I had dark, I like, I have dark hair. Um, and this lady at the grocery store, she said, my goodness, where do you get those big brown eyes? And I, I turned around and I said, my aunt has big brown eyes. And it's true because my aunt, who's my mom's biological sister, has brown eyes. And so I was confused at the question. My mom told me years later that she was incredibly offended by it because I think my mom kind of takes everything as a they know, they know or, or something. And, I, you know, again, I just try to chalk it up to ignorance. Like, you know, I mean, I can have brown eyes. My sister have green, green eyes. You know, we just that's how biology works sometimes. And that's basic science. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But I'll be real honest. Science says that that um, little baby Carl did not come from me and my wife. Okay. <laughs> I actually had a had a, a gal who um, it was a little uh, Chinese restaurant I think and it was an Asian woman who was running and she was always just sweet to us yeah very nice lady but she came in one day and and we had the baby she come oh he's so cute and and she looks at me dead in the eye and she's like he looks just like you and I'm thinking no he doesn't no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know and she I, I know she was trying to be kind. And she probably had dealt with her fair share of racism, being an Asian in America, running running a Chinese restaurant, and she was just being, you know, being kind. But it made me laugh because I'm like, yeah, most people don't see it that way, and they don't try to be kind in those moments. And my God, what a different world we would live in if more people just tried out kindness instead of trying to find a reason to separate us into different camps. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. You know, my my son, he is half Hispanic. And, um, he's dark though. I mean, he looks nothing like me. And I remember, and I was young when I had him, I had him when I was 20 years old. Um, and I remember carrying him around one day and we were at the park and some lady thought I was his nanny. She thought I was his babysitter. And I just had to explain, no, that's my baby. I'm just pale, <laughs> but he's got my eyes. Look really closely. He's got my face. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a hard thing in our in our society sometimes to deal with that. But I see in my kids' generation that that what I'm not seeing is that that sort of race based trouble in a lot of their friends group friend groups that they're more willing to to be friends with people who don't look like them. And I see that as a sign of us moving in the right direction. Hopefully, I completely agree. Honestly, I think that yeah, interracial relationships or like biracial babies that's not even as big of an issue as it was. You know. 40, 50 years ago, that would have been a big deal, you know, at my parents' time. Um, my dad is 75, just to put it in perspective. Um, so he, and he was raised in like Canyon, Texas, which is, you know, he was basically, like you said, 21 years old before he saw his first anybody who was not white. And so I think that, yeah, once we kind of realized how messed up this whole thing was, and once we started having those conversations, then it became not so big of a deal. And, and we need to have those conversations about mental health more, I think now. And I think that's happening. I think a lot more people are open about mental health, mental struggles. You know, you see celebrities now checking themselves into rehab and it's not as big a taboo as it would have been maybe 20, 30 years ago. And I, 
I love that. I do think that that's very progressive. And I do think that we're moving forward in those aspects. I mean, I don't think I would have talked about my personal journey with mental health 10 years ago. And here I am on your podcast. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're right. It's so important because, you know, I, growing up, I remember my mom had some struggles around some things and, and my dad said, you don't need to pay somebody to talk to, you know, you can just talk to me. Right. And that was just his mentality. And it wasn't the truth for her though. She needed a little bit, you know, she, and you know, again, mom, if you're listening, that's nothing bad about you. I see a guy. All right. So don't take that the wrong way. Cause it's, it's not at all meant that way. We all need, we all go to the doctor for a checkup from time to time and we need so important. Yeah. And the head, the the head doc, he's really important too. He needs to check a few things once in a while. You know, you need to check the the oil and in the motor and make sure you're not getting ready to blow a motor up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that mental health is a stigma that we're still kind of, you know, working, you know, through getting to be more open about, but it is nowhere near talked about enough. And um, I think that's why there's so much hate. Like we were talking about earlier, it's because people have these feelings for themselves or these feelings that they can't process that they're just projecting. And it makes the world a less bright place. It really does. And I think once you're able to address your own issues, I'll be honest, I was a mean kid. I was a mean kid. I was mean to other children. I wasn't mean to animals ever. I was mean to children though. And I just, it was because I had so much pain and I wanted everybody to feel it. And so once I was able to kind of process that work through it, I would like to say that every day I do my best to be as, I swear, I really like, I put my thoughts into it every day, every person I talk to, to be like, is this the nicest thing I can say? You know, and I mean, it can be nice feedback too. It doesn't always have to be like, you know, you're being fake, but is this something that's going to be helpful or is this something that's going to be hurtful? And that starts with you. It really does. Yeah. I'm working on theory over here and, um, Again, full disclosure, my PhD hanging on the wall over here was drawn by me with crayons. So um, maybe somebody with a real PhD can, can, can hash this idea out a little bit, but I really feel oftentimes like in, in a world where we have so much difficulty, so much trauma, so much going on and people feel so out of control that part of the reason we see so much anger is because anger is one of the few places where we feel control. When I get angry, I'm the big brown guy with lots of facial hair. If I get loud, I mean, thank you, Uncle Sam. The army taught me how to sing cadence so I can be loud and big and scary and all that. And when I do that, I can control most situations pretty quickly, which is, I think, why we're drawn to it. Because we feel so out of control in our lives. And it's a one place we have it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I I can't relate on, you know, being big and loud. But (laughs) I I can, you know, I was, I can relate on, you know, I would say things that I just knew would push buttons or I knew that, you know, they would take home with them because, so sorry. Um, uh, anyways, I'm sorry. Um, things that I would just say that would just be, that would make people hurt as much as I did. It really was that stereotypical phrase you hear all the time, hurt people, hurt people. And once I was really able to honestly kind of work past my hurt, there's still things that I want to go back and reach out to people and apologize for. And I can't remember their last name or, you know, I can't remember even who it was that I said this thing to, but I was just in a bad place and I made mistakes and I was working through things that, that 
I, I, you know, I'd like to say that, well, that's, there, there really is no excuse to be honest with you. There's no excuse, but I was working through things and I didn't know how to deal with it correctly. And I think so many of us are emotionally stunted for one reason or another. And, and when we struggle with that, as we become adults and very few adults that I'm seeing in, in culture today are doing the hard work of getting through that. And I think that that's great that if they're, if they're genuinely working on it, I love that. I mean, you know, ever since when I started seeing my therapist, um, my mom went to go see a therapist too. And then my sister went, my dad kind of has the same mindset as your dad, where it's like, well, we don't really need to talk to anybody. But again, my dad is 75 years old and, you know, sometimes a little out of touch (laughs) as much as I love him, as much as I love him again, he's, he's one of my biggest supporters, but, um, Yeah, there. I think that it really just kind of opens up a world when you can show people your progress to be like, it's actually, it's actually a really good thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and and to talk about progress just a little bit because you came from a kid who was from a hard place who came to America and put in in a much easier place, but still had a really hard time, and you had to walk through that, and you've moved through all of that. Now you're a mother with an intention on doing nothing but taking amazing care of your child. And you're also helping with, uh, with with kids in care as well. So can you talk about that just a little bit, where you're at and what you do and, and, and how that, that really affects your life um, or, or maybe how it, how it lines up with your core values? Absolutely. You know, I was told my, my basically my whole life in therapy that one of the greatest things that I could do to help heal myself would be to give back. And I didn't really take that upon myself because I was so focused on, you know, getting through school, um, you know, having this surprise baby at age 20 and and raising him and loving him. So finally this year, I met Cheryl Williams, who you've had on the show before, and she runs fundfc.org or Fundamentals for Foster Care, which is Texas-based. And um, they just, they take, we really do whatever it takes to help donate and, and raise money for kids in the Texas system because there are just never enough supplies. Um, so we're currently collecting books. We're currently collecting clothes. Um, monetary donations are always appreciated, obviously, because then we can buy what it is that we need for these kids if we know their specific sizes or what books they are. It is a nonprofit organization. So, I mean, everything goes to these kids. Um, and I really do think that that does help heal. And having my son, I really do think is what changed my life. Um, having him, especially so young, I think it really saved my life. <laughs> it was um, It was terrifying at first. I remember calling my parents I couldn't even face them to tell them I was pregnant. And I was calling my parents. I had his dad right there. And at the time, his dad and I both worked for my dad. So he, my son's dad was just terrified. He was like, <laughs> are you sure we have to tell them? I was like, yeah, they're going to kind of notice. So when I called and I told them, um, I immediately hung up the phone. My sister calls me and she goes, what's wrong? Mom is in fetal position on the floor. <laughs> everybody thought I was going to be a terrible mother. I'll just say everybody thought I was going to be a terrible mother because at the time I still wasn't really trying as hard as I could have been um, because I didn't, I still wasn't at the point where I really loved myself. I was in therapy, but I was just going because I felt like I had to, not because I really wanted to work at it. And my son, because of him, um, you know, I talk to my therapist constantly about parenting things. I read, I do everything I can to make sure that he grows up completely differently than, than how I did. So my son is making straight A's. He's always made straight A's. He made the principal's list. He's in soccer. He's Moko Jumbie. He's the sweetest kid 
in the whole world. Like so, so nice. He was such an easy baby. Potty trained himself at 18 months. He's a smart kid. I mean, he was wow. everything. I mean, he really, like we had like a play potty or whatever. And we just kind of show him, this is how you do it. And he wanted to, he just wanted to learn. And so I, I think that I credit the way I raised my son and his success towards the resources that I was able to receive. And I, I'm just so thankful that, you know, I was able to get that, but not every child does. And so anything that anybody can do to help out the kids who are still in the system, like I said, donations of any type were always appreciated. Um, we would love that. We would love that because some of these kids have nothing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we talk about the size of the foster system in the country right now. Um, it's 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 quite a quite a challenge. But let's be honest, um, y'all Texans have got something to uh, to talk about down there about the, the state being the size of, of a country. And then now with that, I don't mean to get political, but now with like, you know, the whole no abortion thing past six weeks, there's going to be a lot more kids in the system. There's going to be a lot more. It is going to. Yeah, I think it's probably going to double, triple, probably within the next 10 years, quite honestly. Um, and that's, you know, obviously a political thing. and We don't have to get into that. But I mean, I would just start prepping now with any kind of help that we can, because I just I really am scared to see if this stays um, how many kids we really will have in the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I mean, Texas is a, it's a big state at any rate way you look at it you know it's i live there in west texas for a hot minute when i was in the army and my gosh that place is huge you could drive all day and not get to the other side you know it's true it's true yeah and the number of kids that, that are in that state yeah and and just i mean again i i don't really dive off into politics typically because i think they're all kind of crazy um every one of them <laughs> i don't care what letter they put after the name on cnn they're all they're all a little bit crazy up there but but the truth is, is that they're not all doing the best for, for Americans in general. Oftentimes, they're they're taking care of themselves, and I get that. I see that. But um, I also know that that a lot of times kids will end up being on the losing end because it's just collateral damage in their in their world. So that's that's really the struggles that that I think we're facing in this country when we look at it. Because the truth is, is is these kids need to be need need to be paid attention to we need to to look out for this because if we don't deal with this stuff now especially with these the, the younger kids in the system if they're not dealt with today in their situations that they have we're going to deal with them when they're older because just the, look at the, the stats on kids who age out of the system and the number of them that end up in the in the justice system to be dealt with when they don't have any tools as a young kid thousand percent agree with you on that i think yeah you need to deal with it sooner rather than later otherwise there will they they'll be back i mean in some way or another i mean you're going to pay for it one way or another and it is up to us everybody and any adult really and i think it hits parents especially hard to take care and advocate for those children who can't really advocate for themselves yet i mean like i said you know i didn't know when i first started therapy that i even needed it and i was 8 years old i, I had no idea that my adoption or what i had experienced in russia was the reason I was acting the way I was. And had I not gotten help, I really do think I would be on drugs or be homeless, or maybe I would have even given up my own child. You know, I, I had, and like, please don't get me wrong. Like it took years and years of therapy. It took a therapeutic boarding school. I'm still in therapy to this day. Um, 
And it cost my parents hundreds of thousands of dollars, quite honestly, um, because I was in boarding school for four years in, in Utah to just process all this. But because they did that, I've never been arrested. I try to advocate for kids today. I'm like, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I'd love to say I'm a good mom. (laughs) We can ask my son, but I don't know what he'll say. (laughs) But, you know, I I just think that, yeah, you have to address it because even though I was only in an orphanage from age three to five, the damage and how long it took to fix that damage was astounding. Like, I mean, it took, it took almost my whole life to fix it. So these kids who are in foster care from birth to 18 and then they age out and then they're by themselves. I can't imagine surviving. I can't imagine surviving. I barely survived at 18 with my parents. I just, it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really important for us to realize just what the size of the impact one person can have in this system, you know, because yes, and we have been told a number of times as parents of many, many kids over the years, um, look, you can't save them all. And I'm like, I know, I know I can't save them all, but I'm going to tell you what, what I can do for one kid might make a difference for a lot of kids. You know, we, I have one particular kid in, in my, in my mind right now who, who was in our house for about a year and a half when he was younger. And, um, with his diagnosis and where he ended up, uh, quite frankly, it could have gone one of two ways. It could have gone really good or really bad. And with the way it went, we're fortunate that it went really well because he learned he, he had a, an attachment disorder at a young age. And attachment disorders can quickly become um, what they call conduct disorders, which is the you know the layperson is hard as psychopath, right? It can and that's yeah. the sort of thing that can come out of come out of real heavy trauma at a very young age, which he had experienced. And quite frankly, through no magic of our own, other than just to be a home where this little guy came and stayed with us for a year and a half. And quite frankly, I think it was just super fortunate that he came at the time he did, that he and my wife formed this attachment that was ridiculous. Like this boy was was all about her. Mama's boy. I love that. Every picture I have of the two of them is like, wow, you can see it there. You it's it's just it's palpable that it's that it's there. And and it, it changed his life because he didn't go the other direction. He last I saw and and we still keep up with them a little bit on Facebook because I mean, they were young enough that when they were in our house, I can see why their parents don't want to, you know, keep any any connection with us open today. But I, I'll admit it. I do a little Facebook stalking once in a while, and I see the smiles. I don't see a kid who's who's in problems and, and trouble all over the place. I see a kid who knows how to smile now, and he did not when we met him. And oh. that one change, that one kid, like, he changed me in so many ways just to be able to see that turn happen. Then I go, yeah, this this is... This is not only was it worthwhile, this is a calling. Like the world's going to be different 100 years from today because of the effects that, that we've been able to have on kids. And quite frankly, as much as I, I talk, you know, talk about you know, what, how we try to help kids, the truth is, is these kids have affected my life so much, I'll never be able to give back as much as I have learned from some of these kids. They have taught me so much. I love that. That is so heartwarming to hear. That is a wonderful thing to hear. And to kind of go back on what you said about, you know, some people saying you can't save them all. I, I completely disagree with that mentality because you're right. You're starting a butterfly effect. You know, I, I, I really want to say it was Buddha or Gandhi. I can't remember. God, I should have looked up this quote before we talked, but it was, it's one minute can change a day. One day can change a life and one life can change the world. I mean, imagine if Elon Musk had been a foster kid 
You know, I mean, and look at how much he's done for science. You know, that that could be a child who is currently in the system who has that potential that we just haven't unlocked yet because they're they're just they're not we don't they don't have the support. That's it. They don't have the support. Yeah, understanding that is um if you just go Google, you know, former foster kids and the word celebrities and you'll find people like um and, and if it, Willie, if you happen to be listening, I'd love to talk with you. But um, <laughs> Willie Nelson is one of those guys who I think is just a wildly interesting dude. Wildly interesting dude. But, you know, his his background. Um, Marilyn Monroe was in foster care as a child. I mean, um, like people you know. There's If you just Google that, you'll find the list of celebrities. It's huge. And I'm certain we could dive into the psychology of why why those kids have become such amazing celebrities in this and people in this world. But But, yeah, it's all those lives were changed by someone somewhere along the line. Absolutely. I actually did not know that about Marilyn or Willie. So that's, that's great. You learn something new every day. I did not know that. I am going to Google that after this. Yeah. And like I said, Willie, if you listen to this kind of stuff, man, I'd love to talk to you. Email me. Yeah. I don't expect to get an email at the end of this, but maybe I'll take it. I'll take it. I just, but the thing is, is that he is who he is today because of the life he's lived. And the choices that he made in that life and the choices that other people have made that thrust something on him that he had to deal with as, as, as a human being. And it's changed like the whole world will be different because these people have lived. I agree. I agree. Especially, you know, if they're successful enough to have their voice be heard by millions, then then hopefully they use that platform for for good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was it? Um um, Daryl McDaniels, I want to say maybe from, was he from DMX? Um, he and Sarah McLaughlin, uh, are also both, both, um, adoptees. And, and so, uh, I've heard them, I've heard Daryl tell his story before on a, on a podcast here or there. And I'd love to be able to talk with Sarah about that as well, because she is such an influential individual in the world. And it's yeah. just amazing that, that when you look at this, you know, this random kid comes into your house you know, who comes in and has this, this difficult story about where they come from. And, and you just try and help them through that. Often most kids come to our house. We try and help them through what we can and try and help them start to, to, to feel safe enough to where they can begin to heal themselves a little bit and work through their situations. And then they go on and we'll probably never know what difference that's made in 99% of their lives. But that's still, I mean, it's still huge. You know, I, I have this vague memory and she didn't really take care of me, take care of me or anything like that. But when my parents picked us up, we had this translator in Russia named Tatiana and she was just so kind to me. And I think it must've been about 15 years after we were adopted. Cause I was around 20 years old. Um, some family friends went to uh, Russia to go adopt. And my parents briefly mentioned Tatiana. Somehow they found her. They went there, they showed our pictures and I will never forget her kindness. She had an apple tree, um, and again, she translated between me and my parents. So I could kind of understand what was going on. Cause I really, I really didn't know what was going on. Um, they told me my parents were coming to get me. I assumed my birth mother and then, you know, these two Americans show up and I'm like, what is happening? Um, but I, I will just never forget the kindness, even though we spent maybe three or four days with her, that was it. And so I think what you guys are doing is something that they will definitely carry for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, it will make changes for sure. And and I just I want to encourage anybody who wants to be a foster parent or anybody who is that yes, we're we're helping out a kid who may 
may end up working a 40 hour a week job and just being a great parent and a you know, great husband or wife. And we might be, we might be helping out the next president of the country. You just never really know. All you can do is, is reach out and try to help a kid because they need it and no, no other reason. To me, I even think it's success stories as long as they're happy. It took me a long time to even figure out how to be happy. So when I woke up one morning and realized, you know, it's okay and I'm safe and I'm loved. To me, like that was enough. Like that, that to me was success. And so I just, I, I do think that if that's something people want to get involved in, they need to be aware of, of the risks and, um, you know, just, you know, that it could end up a little difficult. I mean, I, like I said, I gave my parents so much trouble that I, I literally had to be sent away for my high school years because I was such a bad influence on my younger sister. I mean, I was just out of control and I don't think that that's what they were expecting. Quite honestly, I don't think that they knew how to handle it, but they took every step that they could to make sure that they did handle it. And I wake up every day, happy and blessed. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Anastasia, I want to thank you so much for telling your story on here today because people connect through stories. We've been telling stories for, well, all the way back to cave paintings, right? That we've been telling stories and that's how we communicate and people can really understand who you are and, and how the, their life and yours intersect and what you can do with the world by that story. So I want to thank you for coming in, giving us some of your time and allowing us, you know, allowing me, I guess, today to pick your brain a little bit and, and throw some of this out there in the world and hopefully we'll create more good out of this than, than what's there originally. I love that. And thank you for having me on. It's been such an honor. I, I really do appreciate this. And for you giving us a platform to speak um, our truths and to speak on behalf of the kids who are still in the system and who um, somebody could listen to from here and help potentially. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Anastasia's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where we can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled oh, Studios. Studios. Studios.